This episode of Excuse the Intermission is presented in partnership with the Grand Cinema. The Grand Cinema is the South Sound's nonprofit home for independent, international, and local film. The theater strives to enrich the lives and enhance the cultural vitality of the greater Tacoma community through the art of film. The Grand Cinema is dedicated to providing their signature art house movie going experience in a safe and healthy fashion. There is something for everyone at the Grand Cinema. Along with their wonderful weekly programming, they are also home to the Weird Elephant Late Night Film Series, the Silver Screen Society, Free Family Flicks, and Tacoma's Outdoor Movie Series. You can also inquire about theater rentals at the Grand Cinema by contacting their box office or website. The staff and volunteers cannot wait to make your experience at the movies a memorable one, so grab your friends, grab your tickets, and don't forget to stop at the concession stand for the Grand Signature Popcorn. The Grand Cinema is located at 606 Fawcett Avenue in Tacoma, Washington, and open seven days a week. You can find them online at www.grandcinema.com and on Instagram and Facebook at The Grand Cinema. How's it? I'm Alex McCauley, and this is Excuse the Intermission, a discussion show surrounding breakup movies. Ahead on today's episode, I will be steering this one-man ship through the vast ocean of cinematic heartbreak, emotional trauma, and sadness. I'll try and sprinkle in some levity. Not all of the movies that I'm going to talk about today constitute as total downers, so we'll try and have some fun too. All that up next, but first a quick break. This episode is presented in partnership with the Tacoma Film Festival. The 17th rendition of the Tacoma Film Festival will be taking place on October 6th through October 13th at the Grand Cinema in beautiful Tacoma, Washington. Filmmakers from across the United States and and around the world will be showcasing feature-length narrative films and documentaries at this renowned festival, plus a wide array of short films, including more documentaries, comedies, late-night specials, and shorts that are the Pacific Northwest-inspired. Early bird VIP passes are available now to the public and for Grand Cinema members at a discounted price. These passes include top-tier all-access entry to every festival screening and special event, including cast and crew, Q&As, community forums, and virtual films. For more information on past pricing, head over to TacomaFilmFestival.com or visit the Grand Cinema box office located at 606 Fawcett Avenue in Tacoma, Washington. Just a little more detail on last month's Patreon episode and this podcast. Unforeseen circumstances threw a wrench into our recording schedule towards the end of August, and Max and Grant were unfortunately not able to get in the studio. All is well with them, though, and we plan on being back as a squad as soon as possible to record our scheduled shows. Those being our favorite sequels of all time, a Patreon rankings episode of Phase 4 within the A24 universe, and an episode surrounding our favorite mockumentaries. We will do our best to get those episodes recorded and released, but in the meantime... You are stuck with me. So without getting too deep into my own personal life, I've spent the last handful of weeks watching a lot of movies that surround characters falling in and out of love, dealing with conflict in one way or another, and breaking up. So when Max and Grant were all of a sudden unavailable to record this week, I needed to pull an episode out of thin air, and this topic seemed pretty appropriate. So before I get into my list of favorite breakup movies, I thought I'd just talk a little bit about why finding catharsis through the art of film works for me. You know, whether it is dealing with a relationship coming to an end, 
the loss of a loved one, perhaps, or even, a, you know, any other real personal or interpersonal struggles, I think the therapeutic power of cinema should not be overlooked. Although most movies do exist within a heightened sense of reality, no matter the genre, I do think that living vicariously through our favorite characters' struggles and triumphs can at least provide a sense of escapism for two hours and, in the most powerful form, actually help shape your own recovery and path through loss, sadness, and grief. You know, I think it's been uh, pretty transparent and, and therapeutic talking about different issues that I've had in my own personal life on this podcast. I try to be as transparent as possible, including uh, my own sobriety. So, you know, when I made the decision to get sober and stay sober, mo movies that dealt with substance use were a big outlet for me. Despite my thoughts on the benefits of cinema therapy and how helpful they have been for me, I do recognize that the confrontation of these past traumas on screen can also be extremely triggering for some people. So obviously take everything that I say on this episode with a grain of salt and do what's best for you. Movies are such a visceral experience. And while I find that that type of engagement is stimulating and helpful, that doesn't mean that you will. So, okay, on to breakup movies. I, I think breakup movies can be sorted into three different subcategories. And I've named those the protagonist's journey, the downward spiral, and the happy ending. Now, I do believe that there's crossover within these categories. The protagonist's journey basically mirrors the hero's journey, commonly found in most science fiction and action and drama films. And that can certainly intersect with the happy ending. The one that stands alone for me, though, however, in, uh, in this grouping is the downward spiral. I find that these stories are the most fascinating and honestly the most true. More times than not, the downward spiral breakup movies showcase both partners' incompatibility and the films end without much resolution, but while also being very fair to both parties. Um, if there's not closure in these movies, and, and that often isn't what you'll find, you know, you just kind of have to roll with it. This isn't the Hallmark channel. And so with that in mind, we will be talking about some pretty heavy movies here. So uh, let's get into the list. I'm not going to present this list in any particular order. However, I will save what I think is the best for last. So the first movie on my list of essential breakup movies is Forgetting Sarah Marshall. I had a great time last night. Congratulations. Well done. Well done. What about you? It's with the, uh, it's with the bag. Right, yeah. I'm off back to England, mate. Oh, you and Sarah going to England? No, no, no. I'm just going alone. Yeah. Did you guys have a fight or something? Yeah, it was really... How you served five years under a... I don't know. You deserve a medal or a holiday or at least a cuddle from somebody. You were only here for a week. Well, I don't know. For me, like one week of it was like sort of... It's like going on holiday with... I, I don't know. I wouldn't say Hitler, but certainly Goebbels. It was like a little holiday with Hitler. Jesus. Oh, well, you know, hey, listen, at least it's clear now for you two to reconnect. So. Oh. I did want to start with a crowd pleaser no. of sorts. I feel like this perhaps might be the most seen movie on my list, and it certainly fits into the aforementioned category of the protagonist's journey. Our protagonist, of course, in this is Jason Siegel. The movie also stars Mila Kunis, Kristen Bell, and Russell Brand, along with Judd Aptow's cast of regular characters that pop in and out of this movie. There's incredible stuff from the likes of Jonah Hill, uh, Kristen Wiig, 
I think you can mostly catch Kristen Wiig's stuff in the deleted scenes. I'm not sure how much of her stuff actually made the theatrical cut, but the unrated version of this movie is is spot on. I really like this movie, though, as a breakup film because it really does show the full spectrum of emotions. You know, we go through Jason Siegel's loss of love in his relationship with Kristen Bell, the way he grieves that, obviously, which is by going to Hawaii and spending some time on himself. You know, this was this was a big self-care movie, I think, before self-care really had its moment here in the last handful of years. And then we also get to see the hopefulness of discovering perhaps a new relationship and some newfound passions. What I, what I really like about this movie though, um, and why I think it fits the breakup genre so well is that, and a lot of people critique the last hour of this movie for kind of dragging. And while I do agree with some of that, I do think that the second guessing that Jason Siegel's character goes through is, is very real. And in the scene where he and Kristen Bell hook back up after she's been left by Russell Brand is is unfortunately all too familiar, I think, to a lot of people who are trying to move on from their past relationships. So I really like that. And then, of course, coming out the other side, you know, he he gets to uh, kind of have his his revenge plot, his his revenge timeline, which is a big thing and, and pretty toxic for the for the most part. You know, when you go online and people are talking about revenge bodies or, um, you know, a, a revenge sort of sort of narrative to coming out of a relationship. I don't really stand by that. I think that, you know, do what you're going to do, um, live your life and be happy, find your happiness, however that is. And in this case, it's by writing a Dracula musical. So shout out to Jason Siegel, shout out to the Dracula musical, um, and, and shout out to forgetting Sarah Marshall. I think that this movie does get somewhat forgotten in sort of the Aptow late 2000s kind of big boom of rated R comedies. Um, but, it, but it's pretty solid and one that we've talked about before on this podcast. So just wanted to, to start out with that one. All right. Getting a little heavier now. The second film that I want to talk about is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which came out in 2004, written and directed by Michael Gondry, and then probably most notable produced by Charlie Kaufman. Um, a film that we haven't really gotten to talk about a lot on the podcast, maybe not at all up to this point. So happy to bring it up. I do think that this movie right now it exists in kind of this weird place that I would also put movies like Fight Club, um, Pulp Fiction, even a little bit, where it kind of has this like I don't know, like snobby film student stigma behind it. Where I think when it came out, it was one of those it was one of those DVDs and one of those movie posters that you would often see in like college dorm rooms, and you would hear people talking about. Um, on different blogs and on IMDb message boards and, and, you know, and, and I think that that was rightfully the thing to do about it. It's, it's quite the thinker. Um, but I do think that it now exists kind of in this snobby air of, of like intellectual, not obviously not intellectual property, but just sort of like, you know, this is a next level type of movie. And the fact that it's a breakup movie and deals with relationship and love and loss, I think adds another layer to that. But I, I do want to kind of just dismiss that and, and reclaim this movie as just a really good film. Um, obviously, if you if you haven't seen it, I'm not going to spoil it. And, and that's going forward for a lot of these films. But the basic idea is that in this, you know, this is a kind of a soft science fiction film. So in this world that, that we get to see and spend time in, there's a process to where you can erase 
past lovers from your mind. You can, and not so much past lovers, but past trauma, past memories, anything that may be traumatic. So Jim Carrey, who is our lead character, learns that his ex, played by Kate Winslet, has erased him from her memory, and he decides to get the same procedure done. Pretty funny, you know, looking looking forward and, and looking at the times that we live in now, this is basically like untagging your ex from your Instagram photos or deleting them all together, you know, getting rid of any sh- sort of shared um, documentation that you may have on the internet. So, so I do think that that's pretty funny when I went back and thought about this movie. Um, but you know, this, this basically just talks, this movie talks a lot about how relationships can just be sloppy and whether or not you've decided to end things mutually or one-sided, both parties have to deal with pain versus this yearning to still be loved. Kate Winslet obviously wanted to just get rid of her memories of Jim Carrey. And then as Jim Carrey thinks that that's what he wants to do, he starts to realize that these might be things that he still wants to hold on to. So a really interesting movie um, and and really like just, just an incredible feat that this story was able to translate as well as it did from the script to the screen. I think that, you know, when you look at this movie, there's a lot of images that have lived on through film Twitter and on Tumblr and on Instagram. And you see a lot of them, um, you know, just get posted. Kate Winslet and her dyed hair is pretty iconic. But for the most part, the story is it's remarkable that it translated as well as it did. So another shout out and and another reason why I think that it has this like it exists in this rarefied air of, yeah, it's a little highbrow, but it's also just like really good and deserving of all the all the acclaim that it's gotten. All right, the next movie um, that I'm going to talk about and that I probably could have saved for the back half of my list, but I wanted to keep in theme with Kate Winslet's appearance here. And uh, so this film is from 2008 and it's Revolutionary Road. Revolutionary Road is directed by Sam Mendes, who at this time was coming off of movies like American Beauty and Road to Perdition, um, Jarhead as well. It's written by Richard Yates, uh, who also did the novel, but most importantly, it's shot by Roger Deakins and the score is by Thomas Newman. So the craft behind this film is just incredible. It really does an incredible job of putting you in the time in which it takes place, which is uh, 1950s Connecticut. We are in the suburbs, and this is really just a a beautifully tragic movie, I would say. Um, it, it's so smart what, what gets done here, casting Leonardo DiCaprio opposite Kate Winslet. Obviously, every single moviegoer in the world has a relationship with these two as Jack and Rose from Titanic. So for them to meet up, um, you know, about 10 years after the filming of Titanic and to play this married couple, it, it it's just an incredible um, dichotomy between what we've known in the past and then what we're seeing here in the present. So we get the full spectrum of their relationship as well. We we get the meet cute at a party and it, it's pretty good stuff there. But then this definitely categorizes as one of these downward spiral movies um, where children are introduced, goals and ambitions and, and a future is plotted together. And unfortunately for these two things, just they fall apart. Um, there is some incredible staging in this film where a lot of the fights even though you're watching these two gigantic movie stars, they feel real. And somehow you're able to forget that you're watching people, um, you know, on the level of Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet, as far as on-screen presence goes, the disdain that they have for each other because of what they perceive as 
you know, like the loss of a, of a life not lived. Kate Winslet's really big on wanting to go to Paris, um, for the first like hour of this movie and, and live this exciting, exciting life with Leonardo. And even if not with Leonardo by herself, and then, you know, they just get trapped in, in the hubbub of everyday life, which I think is so relatable to a lot of people. And really the, the reason why a lot of relationships fail is because we are so consumed with what society says we have to do. We have to raise children. We have to buy a house. We have to always be looking for a better job. And so often what happens is your relationships are compromised in the process. So an incredible film here from a great filmmaker with incredible stars. Michael Shannon is also in this movie and plays a pretty pivotal role. Um, if you have never seen Revolutionary Road, like I said, this is one of the heavier hitters that I'll, that I'm going to be talking about today, but definitely worth a watch. Um, keep a box of Kleenex with you. Probably watch it by yourself. And, and yeah, go into this one with a grain of salt because this one can certainly be triggering. All right, the next film that I'll be talking about is the oldest film on my list, and that is 1979's Kramer vs. Kramer. We'll be back after a quick break. Did you know that you can change what you taste by what you hear? How can you use sound to make a deeper connection with your clients? Can we be healed with sound? Sound influences people in their buying decisions and their daily lives. In the podcast audio branding, I explore all of this, both with my own observations as a voice actor of over 15 years and by interviewing knowledgeable professionals in the field of advertising, marketing, music, and science. To have a listen for yourself, visit audiobrandingpodcast.com. You know Jack Edrich over in accounting? He committed suicide. Yeah, hi. Ted Kramer. Listen, I got to get those photos from the retoucher by tomorrow morning, okay? I'm leaving you. Honey, please. I, I, I can't hear. What? Okay, you too. Thanks a lot. See you tomorrow. You guys eat? Ted, I'm leaving you. Ted. Keys. What? Here are my keys. Here's my American Express card. Here's my Bloomingdale's credit card. Here's my checkbook. I've taken $2,000 out of our savings account because that's what I had in the bank when we first got married. Was this some kind of joke? Here's the cleaning. Here's the laundry ticket. You can pick them both up on Saturday. You. You have to Joe, pick them up on Saturday. Joe, you want to tell me what's the matter? I've paid the rent. I've paid Joe. the Con Ed bill. And I've paid the uh, phone bill, so... Well, you really pick your times, to. <laughs> well, I'm sorry that uh, I was late, but I was busy making a living, all right? Come on, okay? Can we stop now? So, that's everything. Hey... Hey, 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 enough, enough, all right? What are you doing? Where are you going? Come on, just tell me what I did. That's all. Just tell me what I did. That's it's so not terrible. You. It's not then you. what is it? It's me. It's my fault. You just married the wrong person, that's all. I can't, okay. I can't, I can't. All right, can't, fine. Let's just go inside, please. I can't, I tried. I swear. Joanna, please, now, just, I'm sorry. Adapted and directed by Robert Benton, and this, of course, is the divorce saga that stars Dustin Hoffman and Meryl Streep in two of their more iconic roles. This movie was an Oscars darling. It received nine nominations the year in which it came out, five wins for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Hoffman wins Best Actor, and Streep wins Best Supporting Actress. Um, really good stuff across the board there, even though this was the year that Apocalypse Now came out and 
I would probably give Best Picture at least to Apocalypse Now and probably Director as well. But at the same time, this was a smash hit and pretty undeniable in its influence that it had. I think that it came out at a, at a really important time for a lot of people going through divorce, a lot of families that were just starting to reach a breaking point, probably post-war, post-Vietnam, you know, the late 70s going into the 80s, right before the Reagan era of wealth and power really started to dominate American culture. Um, so, so really interesting stuff here. And you can see that in this movie's box office performance. It was only made on an $8 million budget and ended up making $173 million in 1979. So that tells you that this was something that audiences really wanted to connect with and, and really did find some connective tissue between. Um, if you don't know, Dustin Hoffman is basically a workaholic who comes home one day and finds that his wife, played by Meryl Streep, is getting ready to leave him. And this is on the heels of him just landing a huge account and he's on cloud nine and all of a sudden has to start to compromise his work life with being a single parent, a single dad. Um, so this movie really talks a lot about the single parent lifestyle, gender roles, and that work-life balance, which I think resonated with a lot of people. And then the back half of this movie does start to become a, a courtroom drama. But, it, you know, I, I say that with with no disrespect to courtroom dramas. Um, this, this movie actually has some incredibly powerful and vicious deposition scenes in it. Um, obviously, some of this drama led to all the acclaim that it received. So uh, another real heavy hitter here, but it is of a different time to where it would probably be even nastier if it came out now. Some of the things that were said um, about the two different characters. Tough to say whether or not I would call this the protagonist's journey or a downward spiral because there really isn't a happy ending. Um, and Dustin Hoffman, even though he is the main character who we're following, you're never really quite rooting for him because although he does come around and starts to develop this better relationship with his son, it still doesn't feel, it, it, I mean, I shouldn't say it doesn't feel authentic, but it, it still just feels like a, um, you know, a product of circumstance. So, so that's Kramer versus Kramer. It's also a great, um, you're going to want to eat some French toast after you see this movie. I'll just leave it at that. Um, great, great commercial for French toast here. All right. The next movie is a film that we've talked about a little bit before recently on our Coen brothers, uh, top 10 recommendations episode. And that is 2009's a serious man. So Joel and Ethan helm this movie. They write it, they produce it, they edit it, all of that, of course, but it's also shot by Roger Deakins. So Deakins, a bit of a master here when it comes to, um, you know, breakup and divorce movies. But uh, this is another film that, surprisingly enough, got nominated for Best Picture. You know, so so this interpersonal conflict between two lovers, I think, really resonates a lot with uh, the Academy and audiences in general. But if you don't know, A Serious Man takes place uh, in the late 1960s. This is also suburbia. And our, our main character, played by Michael Sturbarg, is a uh, college professor who, much like the Dustin Hoffman character in Kramer vs. Kramer, comes home one day and finds that his wife is leaving him. Um, of course, this being a Coen Brothers movie, there's a lot more satire and a bit of a comic twist put on a lot of this stuff. And basically this this realization that his wife is leaving him kind of sets off this series of connected and also unconnected events that in true Coen Brothers fashion 
are are devastatingly funny. Obviously, if this was happening to you, you would not be laughing as much as you do laugh as the audience member witnessing something like this. Um, but but the, our lead character here, he goes through a crisis of faith. He's a Jewish man, um, and and the entire religion of Judaism kind of gets put under a microscope through this through this story. Um, it's definitely one of those movies where you're watching it and you're kind of asking yourself like, how can this get any worse? This couldn't get any worse. And of course it gets worse. Um, so, so pretty funny, pretty idiot, pretty idiosyncratic as well. I don't think that this is a movie that the Coens probably would have been able to make if not for the success of no country for old men, which came out just a year prior to that. And I still love that, this is the type of story that they decided to tell coming off such a high with that movie. Um, and it's interesting because after no country for old men, if you were going to ask like the, the Cohen heads and some, some film buffs, maybe what is their most successful movie? What movie has endured the most since no country for old men? I think a lot of people would start to say a serious man, this, this movie's, you know, it's aged really well and it's, it's held in pretty high regard among, among film fan, film buffs, film fans. Um, you know, I, I hate saying phrases like that because I don't want to attach any level of, you know, kind of like what I was talking about earlier, any, any level of headiness to, to these movies, um, because this is a pretty entertaining, pretty enjoyable film. That's why I have it here in, in the first half of my list. Um, but, but that is the first half and I'll be back with the second half after this quick break. Scream team. How you guys doing? I'm Derek Schneider. I'm Max Fosberg. And I'm Kristen Marlowe. And we are the terrifying trio here to tell you about our show right here on the chatter network called the silver screams podcast. It's a show where we watch scary movies and then talk to each other about what we just saw all the way from the hardworking people behind the scenes to the themes and sometimes deeper meanings of those scenes. And of course, the best part, our favorite kills. So tune in every Friday, wherever you get your podcast fix. And as always, stay stay spooky, spooky, Scream Team. Okay, we're back and about to tread out into some deeper waters. So the next film on my list here is Call Me By Your Name from 2017. Obviously directed by Luca Guadagnino, starring fan favorite Timmy Chalamet. And then you have Army Hammer, of course, is the second lead. And I wanted to put this one after Serious Man because it also stars Michael Storberg as um, Timmy Chalamet's father, who's a very integral part to this story. Obviously, this is one of those movies where I try to bring it up as much as possible. And I do think that it is a little bit loose fitting in this category because it's really not until the end of the story that you start to experience our two lead characters, um, not so much falling out of love with each other, but but just breaking up and separating and, and not being together. So so a different movie, I think you can achieve a different level of catharsis watching this film post breakup than you would some of the other movies on my list, but it's really just a a good hang up until the end there. I mean, we're in 1980s Italy. I think that we talk about, or at least I'm talking about a lot of different themes with a lot of these movies. Whereas this one really focuses on, um, like short, a short lived relationship as opposed to a marriage that is now going through divorce um, this really talks about how heavy and how impactful finding love at such a young age, and especially at the time, what was a forbidden love, um, 
and the impact that that can have on you and, and how the highest, uh, the highest of highs can feel so great. And then the lowest of lows can really be devastating and, and make you feel like you're, you're kind of never going to get, get your life back. Um, and, and I definitely would recommend the sequel to this book and, and also reading the book itself, because I think that, um, you know, the book does probably an even better job than the movie of, you know, just kind of detailing how when you've fallen in love with someone, it's really hard to start looking at things and experiences and everyday objects that you're still going to go through the same. Um, whereas, you know, our, our character, Timothy Chalamet of his character's name is Elio and the way in the book that he describes just kind of how, you know, going out to the backyard and laying down on a blanket and drinking tea and doing or, or drinking juice and some of these other things, they're just so hard to to look at the same now that this person isn't in his life anymore. And, and to have these shared experiences no longer mean what they meant is really hard and really devastating. Um, the, the movie still does an incredible job of, of showing these things in a more nuanced way. There's just, there's incredible production design, cinematography and music in this movie that really helped create that environment. Um, so you know, it's no surprise that this movie was nominated for the Oscars that it was nominated for. I just, I love this story kind of loose fitting, like I said, as far as a breakup movie goes, but still one that really helps you get in touch with your emotions. All right. The next film, uh, the next four really are all, these are, these are gut wrenching films. Um, sorry guys, but th this next one's from 2010 and it's blue Valentine. Another movie that I've always really enjoyed and that I feel like I've never really gotten a chance to talk about on an episode before. Uh, this is directed by Derrickson France, who also directed Place Beyond the Pines, which is another all-time favorite of mine. This film, though, Blue Valentine, stars Ryan Gosling and Michelle Williams. Um, 2010, Michelle Williams. You can paint the picture in your head of what she was going through. Um, at this time. And so to be involved in, in such a story, her performance, you know, I think really anchors this movie and she was nominated for an Oscar for, for her portrayal here of her character. The story though, it, it is nonlinear. And I think that that really lends itself in this case to showing this couple's downward spiral. This is definitely another one of our downward spiral movies where things fall apart pretty fast and pretty furiously. Um, this movie also does a good job of dealing with and showcasing how the experiences that we have as children and the way that we perceive marriage through our parents' own struggle with maintaining a relationship and, and how that can then in turn affect how we view relationships. Michelle Williams' character in this movie did not have, um, we'll say, a positive experience with her parents' marriage. So a lot of what she goes through in this movie, it's impossible for her not to draw through lines and to realize that she's falling into the same sort of trap that her parents did. Um, you know, Ryan Gosling in this movie, I wish that our guy would still make movies like this, but I also understand that he he kind of doesn't need to because for a while he was really banging them out. Um, he, he plays a pretty deadbeat uh, jerk in this movie to put it likely um, you know substance use gets brought up a lot in this film I think that inequality in ambition which is a really important thing in most marriages and most relationships this film does a great job touching on that where Michelle Williams character 
you know, she's trying to go to medical school. She's trying to do these different things to further her future and the the future that she wants for her child, which is not Ryan Gosling's child, but that he has agreed to help raise with her. And yet he is bouncing between kind of dead end jobs. He's a mover when they meet. And later on in the film, he's painting houses as, as a way to make money. And, you know, there's even more trauma that gets introduced don't look this movie up on does the dog die.com because you'll find out that yes, the dog does die. And that's a pretty heavy scene between these two. Um, but yeah, blue Valentine, um, a movie that I, th- I think was, it was accepted when it came out and people knew what kind of film it was going to be. They knew that this was going to be a lot more intimate that some, than something, um, like the notebook that Gosling had been in before. And they knew that it was going to be more, um, it was going to be more than something of of just a drama that it was actually going to be this this emotional reckoning of a film but i still think that people were kind of caught off guard by how heavy this this movie really was so i recommend it but it, you know if i was going to put an asterisk next to any film on this list it would probably be blue blue valentine or revolutionary road just because i think that they are such scary real portrayals of how marriage and relationships can end it's also available on Tubi though. So fire up, fire up Tubi and, and watch Blue Valentine. Okay. Three more to get to here. Um, and the next film is Gone Girl from 2014. Really nothing more than I can, that I can say about Gone Girl that hasn't already been said. Um, you know, happy birthday to David Fincher who just celebrated a birthday a couple of a couple of days ago, maybe a week ago now, depending on when this episode comes out. But but yeah, directed by Fincher, based on the novel by Gillian Flynn. Um, you know, another one that I feel like is kind of a loose fitting, quote unquote, breakup movie. Um, but because of how our characters end up, uh, Ben Affleck, Ben Affleck's character and Rosamund Pike's character. But I still do think it fits the bill, just because it. It shows the uh, the pitfalls of of marriage and being in a relationship that maybe one person isn't as invested in as the other. Um, what this movie does so well is show how you know one partner can be so oblivious to the other person's needs and how that can create such a divide. And now, obviously, the divide in this movie is taken to extreme levels um, of manipulation and characters are pushed to the the brink of their own psychosis. But, you know, when I think about this movie, I think about how if there was an HBO documentary series that detailed the exact events of this movie happening in real life, sadly, we're at a point now in our society to where, you know, I'd believe it you'd believe it. You'd watch it and you'd talk about it at work the, the next day and say, can you believe that this person did these things? Um, you know, I, it's hard to have a spoiler free conversation about gone girl, despite the fact that it's been out for almost 10 years, but there are still people who I know don't know the story. And I know this because I was watching this last week and posted a, a clip of it. And someone responded to me saying that they were reading the book for the first time and had not seen the movie. So you know, shout out to everyone who's been able to wait on this film and not have any of it spoiled because when this movie turns halfway through and when the book turns halfway through, just jaw dropping stuff. Um, in the movie, particularly though, I, I love the casting of Ben Affleck as Nick Dunn. I think that Fincher 
you know, he did that so purposefully and, and Affleck was totally in on the bit of commentating on his celebrity status and how much his own personal news has been in the tabloids. And 2014, you know, this is definitely in the era of social media, but I do think that, you know, the disappearance of Rosamund Pike's character, Amy, and in the way that it is so publicized and, and captures the nation's attention, I think on a super, super, super small scale, it is kind of what happens when, when couples break up and all of a sudden, you know, there's, we all do our own little private investigating where it's like, you know, I'm not seeing, I'm not seeing this person post as much anymore, or this person's going out in public and I don't see him with this person as much anymore. What's going on here? Let's try to get to the, to the bottom of this. Why did this happen? Um, and, and of course, like I said, this movie blows all that up on, onto just about the grandest, uh, level imaginable, but still doesn't mean it's, it's not entertaining and still doesn't mean it doesn't fit this category of a breakup movie. All right. The second to last film here is one I know I haven't gotten to talk about before. Um, and one that I've loved since it, since it came out and that's 2004's Closer. Closer is directed by the legendary Mike Nichols and has one of the best casts of the 2000s with Julia Roberts, Jude Law, Clive Owen, and Natalie Portman. And, you know, if you're one of our younger listeners, um, you may not really understand the the chokehold that guys like Clive Owen and Jude Law had on the movie industry back in the early 2000s. And then, of course, Julia Roberts, who has been pretty absent from, from film um, for the better part of like 10 years, I would say. So to get all three of them, plus Natalie Portman, who is just so charismatic, all in a film um, and, and a hard rated R erotic thriller at that was just it was so polarizing. I don't think people really knew what to make of this movie when it came out. And and I do remember even at 14 years old, understanding that it was that it was kind of panned. But then looking back and doing it, just a little bit of research for this episode I had no idea that the movie made a hundred million dollars. Um, it was actually considered a bit more of a success than I remember. Clive Owen and Natalie Portman were even nominated, um, at the Academy Awards for supporting roles, which I found to be somewhat surprising because like I said, I remember critics, um, and audiences alike kind of being out on this movie, even though I was, I was all the way in and at 14 years old, if you've seen this movie, you can understand why I would have been all the way in. Um, but yeah, we have a we have a a real rocky, real crazy, real steamy, real dangerous foursome basically happening in this movie. It starts with Natalie Portman meeting Jude Law, then Jude Law meeting Julia Roberts, then Julia Roberts meeting Clive Owen, and finally Clive Owen meeting Natalie Portman. And I don't want to spoil for anybody what happens um, when all these different characters meet each other, but I will just say that. This movie, um, while being based on a play, has a very Shakespearean tragedy feel to it, um, and and so don't go don't go in expecting a happy ending. This is definitely a downward spiral movie, except for our girl Natalie Portman. She is kind of the one protagonist that you can that you can hold on to and and try to view the movie through her lens. Um, but just an incredibly lewd stuff in this movie, real perverse language. Um, Jude Law has a scene where he basically invents sexting in a chat room while he's talking to Clive Owen and simultaneously kind of catfishing him. And then that's how Clive Owen's character and Julie Roberts end up meeting just 
pretty wild stuff there. Um, I remember trying to see this movie so hard when it came out, but my parents were still guarded enough to know that um, the buzz around this movie was was that of such um, that a 14-year-old should probably not be seeing it. But as soon as I could see it, I, I saw this movie and you know, a lot of it went over, over my head then, but in revisiting it here this last week, I just thought to myself, and I hate saying this because it's become such a cliche, but they really just don't make them like this anymore. Um, this movie's really bleak and really cynical. And I think it does, it does something interesting. Um, and it, and it, it kind of plays on these different romantic tropes of things like timing and coincidence and temptation that a lot of movies sort of lean on and say, this is the reason why people should be together. You know, the fact that you did meet under these wild circumstances should point to the fact that you should be together and you should try to make things work. But what this movie does is it also shows you that just these other really raw human emotions like lust um and and our own selfish desires are just as powerful and and it can bring people together and it can drive them apart so another tough film um to watch coming off a breakup but i think one that you will also find a lot of catharsis in and you know one that if you've never seen it you're going to sit down you're going to watch it and um you're, you're going to have your wig pulled back it's it's a it's a crazy crazy movie all right the final film that i'm going to talk about Number 10 on my list. I said I was saving my favorite for the last. Should come as no surprise that it is 2019's Midsommar. Scandinavian descent into wild pagan rituals, just going crazy the entire movie. Um, saved, saved the best for last, not only because it is one of my favorite movies of all time, but I think that it is, especially right now in our culture, kind of the poster child for men ain't shit, AKA just leave him sis, AKA I can now just live my best life with my new pagan family while you roast in a bear suit type of story. I mean, hard not to relate. Right. So obviously there is much more at play than just this relationship dynamic. Um, a lot, a lot to analyze with the Danny character played by Florence Pugh, because she is dealing with the loss of her family, um, the suicide of her younger sister. But the more and more that you revisit this movie, especially the more I revisit this movie I do I have started to understand I guess that it really is about the relationship between Danny and Christian you know the the finer details of this movie are phenomenal and 
if I was talking about this on any other podcast, I would just talk about the shots and the score and the costumes and the setting and how they all contribute so fantastically to creating this environment that lends itself really well to the horror genre, I think. But through this lens of a breakup movie, I also think that it really lends itself well to feeling foreign and unsafe because when you first watch this movie, you feel those emotions for Danny's character. But then the more you begin to understand what she's going through, you actually realize that she's not in a foreign and unsafe environment because of being with this cult. She's in a foreign and unsafe environment because of her relationship with Christian and the fact that he's the one that is the foreigner in her life and he's the one that doesn't fit and he's the one that's not making her feel safe and comforted. Um, that's when you really, that's when the movie turns and, and it goes to another level. The, the character of Pele, the, the foreign exchange student who's brought them, who has brought this entire group of friends back to his village. He has the great line where he's talking to Danny and he asks her about Christian. Does he feel like home to you? And that's the first time I think that that's the first time in the movie where she really starts to understand that he's the one that doesn't make me feel safe. And I don't feel loved by him and that, no, he doesn't feel like home to me, um, which is just it's chef's kiss next level writing by Ari Aster, because so many times coming out of a relationship, I do think we tend to gravitate back towards situations and even, even just coming out of, of trauma and, and tough life experiences, we gravitate back towards situations that we can perceive as being different or exciting. And yet then we soon realize that we've kind of just sought comfort in familiarity once again. And what makes Midsommar so incredible is, is that our protagonist has found true acceptance and purpose in something that to most others is not safe. And that is not familiar. I mean, her friends, her quote unquote friends are dying all around her. And yet in this new environment, she has found solace and she feels accepted. And so I'm not saying that we all need to drink hallucinatory tea and sacrifice our exes in ancient rituals. But at the same time, if it worked for the May queen, who's to judge? Um, love Midsommar should come as no surprise that I'm recommending that as my 10th and final breakup movie. As I stated earlier, I can't guarantee that they'll leave you feeling better coming off of heartbreak, but at least you'll be able to either find some connective tissue between what you're going through or say to yourself, well, things could be worse. Um, so thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. Hopefully next week, Max and Grant will be back in studio and we can get back on track. But in the meantime, Follow the three of us on Letterboxd to keep an eye on what we're watching between episodes. Go grab your passes to the Tacoma Film Festival, either online or at the Grand Cinema box office. And just be kind to one another. It is a wild world out there. So until next time, y'all, I will see you at the movies. <laughs>